Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, along with my remote buddy, Brandon. What is happening, Tony? Brandon, are you in your basement? I'm in my basement. I had to turn off the the dehumidifier so we could record this. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it fun? Yeah, I mean, we have a de. I I grew up with a dehumidifier, and it's it seems part of basement life. You know, I know a lot of people in a lot of part of the country do, don't have basements, but we're big fans of basements here in Minnesota. Especially, it's a good place to hide during a tornado warning. Exactly, and it's also fun, you know, in the springtime when you know you got to get the sump pump working and everything else. Basements are great. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny when I'm out walking my dog. I don't I don't I don't currently live in a low area. I don't have a sump pump, but I've owned two other homes that have had sump pumps. And I walk I'll be out walking the dog a morning after a big rain and I'll see those long hoses that snake out toward the street and they're just like gushing water into the gutter, you know? Yep. And I think, man, am I glad not to have a sump pump anymore. That's living the life. Hey Brandon, big announcement for the Reverend Hunter podcast. Ready? Yes. You can add some kind of a drum roll sound or something. Um, we have our first sponsor, our inaugural founding sponsor. And who is this inaugural? It's Walton's. Everything but the meat. Yes, I love some Walton. of. Oh, I know you love Walton. Some some of our listeners probably, if they've already heard that Walton's, they have a podcast on the Talk North Network. It's called. Meat Gistics from Animal to Edible. Uh, Walton's, okay, this is pretty cool because uh, I remember going to Pheasant Fest. You and I were both at Pheasant Fest. Uh, we recorded an interview with Land Tawny there, which people will remember was great, great. One of our first, I think our first actual interview um, episode that we released. And I, for many years, you know, I've like looked at Walton's stuff at online and kind of drooled over it. And then I went to their booth and I remember one of their guys being like, well, what, like what here would interest you? And my, I just said everything. (laughs) I mean, they have like grinders and sausage, sausage stuffers and meat cutters and they've just got everything. Okay. They've got everything when it comes to the, like the prep of the meat. And then they've got all these different spices um, and casings and everything. All right. So I'm kind of an amateur novice. Like I make a bunch of uh, pheasant brats every year. I often grind up all my left like deer into ground venison, or I'll make those into some kind of jerky or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Like a lot of hunters, I kind of dabble in it. Well, the guys at Walton's said that they wanted to be the founding sponsor of the Reverend Hunter podcast. And then they sent me some gear and it was like Christmas morning when I opened it up. Super awesome. They sent me a grinder and they sent me a sausage stuffer. And I'm like one of these guys who's for a long time, I used my KitchenAid, like an attachment on the KitchenAid to grind and and stuff sausage and those things inevitably break because they cannot handle all the heavy duty use of the kind of stuff I'm doing. So I would have to constantly be going on Amazon, like buying replacement parts for the KitchenAid that would break. Finally, I went on Craigslist and found an old grinder that a guy was selling and bought that. And I've had that, but I've still been stuffing sausage casings the old fashioned way. Walton's hooked me up, man. They sent me some gear. Uh, a home grinder, a number 12 home grinder, and an 11-pound sausage stuffer. This thing's like taller than my kids, I think. And I'm super excited to use it. Here's what I, here's what I got in the freezer. I have got a, I've got a bag of five and a half pounds of elk meat that my brother gave me. And I am going to make snack sticks. And... I'm going to make them before you and I talk next, before our next episode two weeks from now, and I'm going to give everybody an update, and I'll also be posting uh, photos and videos and of, of the process on The Reverend Hunter on Instagram. It's at The Reverend Hunter, so you can watch that. 
So anyway, all that to say, thrilled to have Walton's and the Meatgistics podcast as a founding sponsor and watch for elk snack sticks coming your way if you live on my block or coming your way through Instagram if you don't live on my block and just want to watch. Excited, exciting, exciting news. It's it's exciting too because I'm going to figure out a way to do a contactless uh, getting of your <laughs> sticks. I have oh, to bro. I, I will, here's what I'll do. I'm going to vac seal some and I'm just going to drive by your house. I won't even slow down. I'll just throw it out my window Perfect. of my car. Perfect. The neighbors don't think that's weird at all. <laughs> just throwing meat out their window at me. That's great. <laughs> People are driving by throwing meat at your house. That, I don't mind that. me. I'm, I'm normal. People just do this all the time. <laughs> oh, well, our guest this week on the Reverend Hunter podcast is a friend of mine named Rob Dreesline. He is the managing editor of the Outdoor News. It's it's a weekly outdoor newspaper that I have gotten for years. I occasionally write for them. Um, Years ago, when I was looking for freelance writing work, I reached out to Rob and said, I'd love to write for you. We uh, We met up for lunch had a great talk, and subsequently have become friends. Um, I see him at a lot of events, but we've also just gotten together in the backyard to smoke cigars, and I was thrilled to interview him for the podcast. What's you know, He's a, he's a great guy, and we, he, he really opens up about his faith journey and also about kind of the, the meaning of the outdoors in his life. And, and, um, he's also really talks about, you know, he's been more and more open about his politics, which as a journalist, I think can sometimes be a little, um, uh, I don't know, a little tenuous for a journalist to do that, but I, he's been very courageous, I think on social media and even in his columns in the outdoor news for that, um, in that case. So I, 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 it was great to have him on. He's a good friend, like I say. I think people will really like it. I really encourage people, especially if you live in one of the states where the Outdoor News has um, a newspaper, and I can't name them all. Obviously, here in Minnesota, I know in Wisconsin, I think there's one in Pennsylvania. Anyway, you can look on the Outdoor News website. That'll It's outdoornews.com, and that will be in the show notes as well. I'd encourage you to follow Rob on Twitter, read his columns and his blog and stuff like that. Great guy. You'll really enjoy our conversation. Um, Also, as always, please subscribe slash rate slash review. We appreciate all the support. And uh, anything else before we launch in, Brandon, anything you got? Any any little little outdoor tidbit you got for us? My outdoor tidbit would be go outside. Get outside, people. I'm sure people are. I'm sure people are. I hope you're listening to this podcast while you're walking your dog or out for a run or doing something. Yeah, it's we are in we are in a perfect weather week here in Minnesota as we record this. So as soon as we hang up, I plan to go outside. Thanks for listening, everybody. Here's my conversation with Rob Dreesline, the managing editor of Outdoor News. Thanks. Rob, thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us here. It's my pleasure. It's good to see you, Tony. Yeah, you too. You too. Um, usually start out by asking people what what how they were raised. I mean, we'll get to outdoorsy stuff, sure. but how were you raised religiously? What was your what was your upbringing? So I was raised Lutheran uh, when I was real young. In what town? In so my dad worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service, and we bounced around a lot. Oh, okay. So. Probably the first church where I imprinted was actually a Missouri Synod Lutheran church oh, right. in southeast uh, Wisconsin. Old German church with old German ministers, the whole works. Yeah. And my parents really loved that church. And then, then we moved to western Wisconsin and struggled to find a church that worked with there, there there were fewer Missouri synods in western Wisconsin probably because there's fewer Germans right that's that's Norwegian country I suppose that's true um, I think maybe were I, there Wisconsin synod Lutheran there, there were a couple there? of those and we yeah. went to a couple of those and checked them out and they were a little too far off for my dad too uh, conservative yes yeah okay. yeah and uh, 
Uh, so we ended up uh, going to an ELCA church, which I think maybe the main reason we went there is because there were a lot of valleys around it full of deer, and my dad got wanted to get to know all the <laughs> landowners uh, so he could secure Smart some, some hunting. Man. Yeah, yeah, and, and we did. I mean, all those valleys around, that's that's where I grew up. Every time I guess preach at a church, <laughs> every time I guess preach at a, at a rural church, I make sure I go to the fellowship hall for coffee hour because if you just sit there just chatting people up, be like, oh, yeah, you should come out to my place. I got right. so many deer. I don't deer hunt anymore. My kid doesn't deer hunt. Come on out, you know, or whatever. Yeah. That just happens all the time. Yep, I uh, I can relate to that. Yeah. Then, um, yeah, I went to school in Madison. Would Yeah, I'd go to church periodically. Uh, married a Methodist girl. Uh, we uh, and and she was one to uh, we we married Methodists, but agreed that we would raise our kids and baptize them Lutheran ELCA Lutheran, and so we got four wait, kids. Wait, wait, now how'd you get how'd you get her to agree to that? Um, what was the negotiation like? You know, between I, I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between Northern Mainstream Methodists and ELCA yeah, Lutherans. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong, but you, you'd know much more about that than than I would. But the hymnals look the same, <laughs> and. Uh, like I say, she she went along with that that pretty easily. Okay, so it meant a lot to you at the time. It probably did to raise your it, kids a Lutheran. It probably meant quite a bit to me. A concession to your parents, maybe you said, "Hey, I know we're getting married in the Methodist church, but trust me, we're going to raise the kids a Lutheran." You know, at the time, I was really into my ancestry and my ethnicity, and felt oh, I needed to be intensely loyal to that. Which was German. Well, German, Irish, English. Okay, uh, and in fact. My Irish relatives were were orange. They were they were Protestant. Uh-huh. Um, but my wife and I went to Germany, and we went to the town where the Jerusalems emigrated from. Okay. And I don't know if you know this. Yeah, I'm sure you know this history. How after the Thirty Years' War, all the cities in in southern Germany, you know, basically all the the the, the Thirty Years' War was about Catholics and Protestants you know, mm-hmm. killing each other. Mm-hmm. At the end, they basically said, "You will be the religion in your region of." I think of your lord of of, of the local, uh, you know, main landowner, whatever that right. was, and most of southern Germany is Catholic, but Weissenburg is a Lutheran enclave, hmm. and I mean, you go there and you're in southern Germany. There's this this town we toured it, big old, big old statue of Martin Luther. Wow. And so I I guess I always felt kind of loyal to that that sure, you know sure. I came from this stock of Lutherans that probably really battled it out to defend their faith. When was the Thirty Years' War? Five hundred years ago? Six hundred years ago? Uh, less than five hundred. Yeah, it was yeah. a long time. A lot of people died. It was a long time ago. Very brutal. It's, it's yeah. the reason Germans are so intense to this day. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say because Germany was a was a was a war zone during you know the yeah. Thirty Years' War. Yeah, a lot of people died, and so I I, I guess I kind of felt like very loyal to that that Lutheranism because of that. Sure. Well, that makes sense. That's yeah, you cool. Buy that. Do you still? Well, I, I thought I thought it through. See, your wife bought it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you still feel it? Well, as you and I have talked over a cigar, my faith has fallen off a bit. I'm, I've struggled with religion more and more as I've. I'm. I. I think I'm a fairly practical, sensible person. I definitely believe in the scientific scientific method. I. I. The older I get, the more I struggle to reconcile. Uh, religion which violates every known physical law of the universe with, um, like I say, my, my, my more practical sense. Yeah, you're a journalist. I mean, I, I, I've sensed that when we've talked in the past. You're, yeah, you are kind of a no-nonsense, cut-through-the-bullshit journalist. And I imagine that colors how you look at claims of the supernatural. Yeah, I, and not only am I a journalist, but I went to college thinking I was going to uh, focus on si- on the sciences. Mm-hmm. To this day, this may not surprise you, I have more s- chemistry credits than I have journalism credits. Okay, okay. So people who read my column, maybe that doesn't surprise them um, <laughs> because it's I'm not that great of a writer. But uh, I, so I, I just, I, I believe strongly in evolution and I was always able to reconcile that. Yeah. And I've really, really struggled with how it seems like science and religion are somehow not compatible anymore mm-hmm. politically. Uh, oh yeah, you know that that we see that. I I don't believe that, and um, it's kind of become an us or them mentality. It seems among mod- with modern religion, and and uh, so so that's part of it too. I guess I'm rebelling against that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, you obviously grew up in a family that was connected to the outdoors. Yep. So h- tell me about that. What was your outdoors upbringing? 
So if you don't mind, I'll give you a little family history. So yeah, my dad uh, grew up in a real blue-collar family in downtown Chicago. He's a Chicago kid. Okay. Um, and his greatest memories were somehow my grandfather would take his two sons out pheasant hunting once in a while, which back then was probably Arlington Heights, right? <laughs> you know, right. they call it Chicago land now. They don't call yeah. it Chicago. Yeah. Uh, but those those memories really seared into dad's brain. And when he, he loved it, he, he loved, loved pheasant hunting. He was a bright guy, bright kid. Went to college and realized he wanted to do something with. He, he was interested in agriculture. He wanted to work in the outdoors in that way. And then he then he. He took a wildlife class and went and went that direction. Uh, drew a high draft number. It was the um, it was the Vietnam era, uh, but got accepted to uh, Brookings, uh, the the wildlife department in Brookings, South Dakota, for a master's program. Went to the Marine Corps and said, "I'll tell you what. Uh, if you guys will let me finish my master's, I'll I'll join you guys and be an officer." And so they said, "Fine, yeah." They delayed his uh, his commission, and then he was an officer in the Marine Corps in Vietnam. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, After getting his master's in Brooklyn, South Dakota. Correct. My mom and dad got married for their honeymoon. They drove to California where dad boarded an airplane, and spent they spent their first, next 13 months apart. Wow. Um, while he was in, on the DMZ, right right in the thick of it in Holy Vietnam. Mackerel. Yeah. Um, lucky to, He was very lucky to survive. Did he talk about that when you were growing up, or was he one of the Vietnam vets who didn't talk about it? My dad will tell you that. He didn't. He didn't see burning villages. I don't think he saw a lot of civilian carnage. He was. He was right up on the DMZ fighting the North Vietnamese. I think it was more of a traditional war for Dad that way. It was brutal, but I don't think he saw. You know, some of those more civilian the atrocities that, that, that yeah. we that we sometimes associate with Vietnam. Yeah, uh, his platoon got just decimated, mm. and that was rough on him. But. He didn't talk about it a lot when I was younger. He did more and more, you know, as we got older. And eventually, my brother joined the Marines, and he's um, he's a pilot in the Marine Corps to this day. But Dad came home. Uh, I was born thir- uh, nine months later, um, <laughs> and uh, he got on with the Fish and Wildlife Service. His first job was at the Sherburne National Wildlife Refuge, north of the Metro, when it was a brand new refuge. Okay. And then we bounced around at other refuges. So. Dad did a little bird hunting then, and when I was about nine years old, he said, I'm going to try the deer hunting thing. We were in Wisconsin. He hadn't done it before. He hadn't. Okay. Uh, and, of course, deer hunting over there is like a, that's like a religion. Yes. And, yeah. uh, you know, and then I just couldn't wait till I turned 12, and I was able to go deer hunting with him. And so uh, we, we always had golden retrievers. We uh-huh. always did some bird hunting over dogs. But the hunting thing came, you know, came when I was in my, well, you know, when we were kids, yeah. twelve years old, that's when we all went hunting. Did Never. you um uh, did you shoot a deer that first year when you were twelve? No, no. It you took, remember the hunt though? Oh yeah, yeah. I was. I remember hunting when I was twelve. I remember being really cold. We had more serious winters back then. It seems like uh, doesn't just <laughs> seem like there's actually data to back that. <laughs> you're up. right. You're right. You're absolutely right. I'm a firm believer in climate change. Uh, but I, I got. I think I was fourteen when I shot my first deer. Hmm. Couple years of sitting before mm-hmm. you shot a deer. Yeah, you remember that first one? Oh yeah, tell me about it. Nothing fancy. I, I if one thing stands out at me, I remember holding my rifle and kind of shaking a little, and having the presence of mind to put my arm up against the tree, you know, to give me that brace. Were yeah. you up in a stand? I was not. I was on the ground. Okay. Yep. I spent most of those most of those times I was hunting from a stand, but I was standing uh, by a big oak tree or something um, when it when it came along and. Double lunged it, ran down the hill, and I couldn't believe it. I when I went down there, and it was, it was dead. <laughs> yeah, that's something. Isn't that something? I, yep. I mean, I I'm an adult onset hunter, um, but I was there with my kid. You know, when he shot his. Well, I mean, he texted me from the stand. I think I got one, and we went out and found it. And I was there as he walked up on his first deer, and. Handed him the knife and he field dressed it. You know, that's it's quite an experience to do it for the first time ever. I mean, it was for me yeah. as an adult. And it was your son's deer. That's but really story. when it's when it's when you're a kid, man, there's something special about that. Like he'll I'm sure when he's your age, he'll be able to talk about when he was thirteen and he shot his first deer, you know. It's pretty cool. And then I got into the bow hunting thing. That's really I mean, if you didn't know me 20 years ago, you said, oh, the Rob, he's, he's a bow hunter. That, that was, that was your thing. thing. Yeah. What's it, what's it about that? I don't, I've never done it. Guys tell me that. My brother shot his first elk with a bow this year, and he's like, I might never shoot another one with a rifle. And then 
two months later he shot another one with a rifle. But <laughs> he said there was something about it. He's like, you just you until you do it, you can't understand it. Hmm. At, like why 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 did you get into it? Well, especially when if you come of age as a firearms hunter in Wisconsin, the firearms hunt over there, my dad always called it an extravaganza. Okay, I mean it's it's a zoo, mm-hmm. right? And bow hunting is just the opposite of that, right? Okay. I mean, it's, it's quiet. You've got the woods to yourself. You've really got to hone your craft, too. I mean, to be accurate with a bow, uh, you know, the crossbow thing is totally th- you know, thrown up, thrown up, uh, tossed the lid off that. But it, it, it takes a lot of time, which is one reason I don't do as much of it anymore. You've yeah. got to spend a lot of time in a tree. You've got to spend a lot of time practicing. And, and as you know, as a father, uh, sometimes yeah. you don't have those hours. That's right. That's right. Um, was there a time? It's interesting. You're like, have have you? How have you introduced your own kids, both to religion and spirituality, and to the outdoors? And have they, in any way, merged for you in your parenting of your kids? Because I know uh, that you hunt with your kids, and they've been a part of deer camp, that your family place in southern Minnesota, and things like that. So, I you know. It's funny how twenty years go by, and you realize, wow, that just happened. Did I plan? Did I plan that out properly? Uh, man, that went fast. But for me, a couple components. One, the, the kids have all taken firearm safety. I really feel I. You and I both know a lot of adults who are just scared of guns. Yes. And I, I think we can have a discussion about guns and gun control and that sort of thing. But I think it's important that I think almost every American shouldn't be afraid of a gun. They should understand firearm safety and, and know how to handle it. So that, that was very important to me. <clears throat> um, it's important to me when my kids hunt that <laughs> with other people that they don't frighten those people yeah. with their firearms handling skills. That's good. Because that's something I've encountered a lot, uh, especially as an outdoors writer. Huh, uh, you know, really? There's been times I've had to call people out for poor firearms. I, I don't, I don't want to hunt with people I think are going to shoot me. Yeah, I'm in the same boat, man. Um, I, I hate that, and I don't want my kids to be And that. I have the same conversation with my kids when we're on the way to a hunt. I'll be like, you and I are going to be the two most yep. safe That's great. firearms people in this group of pheasant hunters. You know, so I get that. But back, back to your question, you know, I, I firmly believe that Christianity uh, is, is about, you know, a component of Christianity is taking care of the earth. It's not suppressing it's not dominating the earth uh, and, the, and the ecosystems and the creatures around us. And I believe proper management of, of game species is part of that. And that's, that's part of my connection to hunting. That's part of the reason I do it. And I've tried to share that with my kids, that if, if there's a spiritual connection for me with hunting, it's that. And, and I've tried to convey that to them as best I could, Tony, over the years. And it- I mean, this might be kind of a setup. How old are your kids? My oldest is uh, is, a, is a junior in college, so uh-huh. g- going to be twenty one, going to be eighteen, going to be fifteen, going to be nine. So you got high school and college kids, and elementary one elementary, yeah, one straggler, yeah, trophy baby girl. <laughs> what do you think? This is purely hypothetical, but what do you think the chances are that your kids, when they're our age, when they're fifty? Or will be practicing Christians, and what do you think the chances are that they will be outdoors persons? Like they'll still be hunting and fishing. I, I, if anything, I think there's a better chance they're going to be hunting and fishing. That's me too. Me too. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think? What's that about? I mean, this is what I. This is one of the things I I want to try to drill down on in this podcast as I talk to people. Is like, what is ch- the, These are two topics. Outdoors pursuits like hunting and fishing and organized religious affiliation that are both changing dramatically in our lifetimes. Both of them are declining in participation. Are they, are they declining in – they're certainly declining in numbers. Yeah. Are they declining as a percentage of population? Yeah. Yes. I mean, larger percentages of the po- – you could probably speak more to the hunting and fishing. I mean, less licenses are sold – even as our population is growing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And religion, for sure, uh, less people are affiliated with churches, synagogues, etc., than were in the past, even as our population is increasing. Delta Waterfall did a pretty good story a few years ago showing that 
part part of the issue is you've got this massive baby boom bubble that's moving through. True, right? And those guys are dropping off fast yeah, from yeah. the hunting sports right yeah. now. So that that's contributing to a lot of it. And if you look at the younger demographics, yeah, they're probably not participating at the rates that the boomers were, but the, this decline we're seeing, I, I think the point was, is, is going to plateau. Really? Uh, it's overstated? May, maybe a bit. But I think we have to operate it like it's not going to, right, yeah. uh, in terms of recruitment. I think you can speak to the religion thing. And what I've read is, yeah, the millennials and younger are abandoning religion, religion in droves. Yeah, my kids don't seem that interested in it. I mean, they're not they, – it's not that they won't go when I – Get, I, I have one still left at home, and when I tell him, get in the car, we're going to church, I mean, he gets in the car. He, it's not like he's I'm he's kicking and screaming, but he would never go on of his own accord. Right. And my college kids, uh, I mean, I think one of them went a few times to church away at college. The other one, I'm pretty sure, hasn't gone at all. So, you know, I was like that in college. A mm-hmm. bit. I, I didn't go to church very often, but I did come back to it. But now... Yeah, well, there's that. I, I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm, so so we're Gen Xers, right? right you and right. I are Gen Xers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I proud of it. I have, yeah, me too. <laughs> Best generation. I um, I have a lot of friends who don't who are falling away at this age. At age really? fifty, you think you come back from college and you engage in a church and you send your kids through Sunday school, et cetera, et cetera, and then you then you stop after right. your kids leave the house and go to college. Right. Then you're like. But I guess for some people, they, the church was a big thing of like, I need to raise my kids in church. And now kids are gone. And they think, well, I don't know that I really believed it. Yeah. I, I still take my daughter to Sunday school every week. My, my wife has been working more on Sundays. Shame on her. <laughs> um, so she hasn't been attending as much. The older kids, like you say, have seemed to be falling off. I've when got you a, take your daughter, do you go? I go, yeah. I'm not well, one of those. So I, you, I, you go sit and worship, and I she do. and she and this is a Lutheran church. It is, despite my some of my struggles, I cannot be one of those guys who drops their kids off and says, "Go learn about Jesus while I go to the gym or something." I, I can't look myself in the mirror if I Good do for that. You. Yeah, I, I got to go in and put my money in the collection plate and sit there and struggle. With yeah, these yeah. Th- these topics we've been talking about, right? You know, Lutherans are good at music. I enjoy the music. What can I say? <laughs> we are. We don't have the sacraments, so we made up through with great music over the years. Over the <laughs> centuries. Tell me, um, has there been a time in your you you do a ton of outdoorsy stuff? First of all, let's just break this misconception that um, being an outdoors journalist means you just like. You're constantly flying off to like fly in fishing trips in Canada and you yeah. get invited to people give you their elk tags in Colorado. <laughs> is that not what outdoor journalism is about? That's that's absolutely not what it's about. Especially in my line of work. I mean, I'm a newsman and, and to to us it's about fleshing out issues and and being re- good reporters. Yeah. Uh, now there are a few jobs like that. There aren't many left. How many anymore. left? No. Uh, I mean, people joke that maybe that's what it was like at the at the newspaper when Ron Shera was there. But by the time even Dennis Anderson, well, Dennis probably got some of those trips. They don't. I don't think those happen anymore. Once in a while, you'll see Dennis do something, but I don't think the the newspapers covering a lot of that anymore. You know, uh, Kurt Wells, who used to be my Dakota's columnist. I don't know if you remember Kurt yeah, in the paper. That he, he became the editor of Bullhunter magazine. And Kurt, I think's had a good time tra- oh, yeah. traveling the globe, um, shooting elk, uh, you know, shooting. I think he's trying to achieve a North American slam or something like that. Which is what, what's that? What are there? 28 big game species or 24 oh, is big that right? game species in North America and, and trying to get everyone by bull. I think. Oh my goodness. Yeah, something like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think there was there was some glory days of outdoor journalism. There was glory days of journalism, right? When when yeah. newspapers were making a lot of money, and they had budgets to allow their outdoor writers to do that. But I, I missed that era. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. but I, I that said, the publisher at Outdoor News, we we've done some trips. I yeah. I hunted caribou in the Northwest Territories, shot two caribou. Tell uh, me about that. Uh, it was fantastic. That's like that would be a dream trip. It I, was I think. absolutely fantastic. It was uh, this was in two thousand. Uh, brought it brought rifles up there uh herds of caribou you know it, it was amazing how lot, the first five days we hardly saw any and then we found them <laughs> and you, you know and are you finding them by scouting like climbing glassing it was on a big we were on a huge lake and okay. so we would patrol by by um 
the boat and we'd pull up to shore and then we'd go hiking up over these ridges uh-huh. and, and you know, you'd glass and see if you could see it. If not, you'd head back to the boat and do it again. And, and those, there were long days. You were working pretty hard. Uh, caribou are delicious, I can tell you that. Oh, uh, my gosh. They, they were in velvet. So it, you need to come by my office. I, I have the mounted uh, caribou in velvet still. I've seen this one meat eater episode where they're hunting like it's called the 40 mile herd or I don't know what it's called, but this herd like stretches out over many, many miles. And it looked like just an incredible hunt. It's gorgeous country. They're amazing animals. How'd you get two tags? That's just how it was. Yeah, back then you could buy, you could buy two. I don't know. Maybe you still can. Tell me about the stock and the, and the, and the shot. So we, we pulled up to one spot, went hiking over the ridge, and we saw caribou in the difference. There was a gri- in the distance, there was a grizzly bear between us and them. Oh, my goodness. It's just incredible. Um, it's just mangling this blueberry field, just having the time of his life eating blueberries. So we, we backed off that. Uh, we, we went to another spot about a mile down and came up. And, man, what can I say? Uh, you know, we, we got up and around some rocks. I got my rifle up over rock, put my glove underneath to, you know, give, give me a, a little bit of stability. Uh, double lunged it. What were it, you shooting? 270. Okay. Yeah. And that was plenty of gun. Yeah. Uh, they're not that big of animals. And he stood, he stood there. And I thought, I don't think I... So I shot him again. <laughs> and then he went down. I looked, The two bullets were about two inches apart. Oh, I, that's I, awesome. Yeah, I, that was a good feeling. Uh, but, you know, he just uh, he was just taking his time to, to bleed out, I guess. Uh, but but didn't go far. He went a yeah. couple steps. Wow. Uh, caught some grayling on that trip, mm-hmm. you know, in, in some of our spare time. One, one of a neat highlight was... We found a herd that wasn't very big, uh, no, no big bulls, that is, maybe 20 of them. And they were walking towards us. We decided we weren't going to shoot any. We, and we just laid down in the moss, and their eyesight's not that good. Really? They walked right past us. No you know, kidding. We were a camel, full yeah, camel. Yeah. But it's just funny. I bet they didn't one, smell you either. I bet one walked within 10 yards of me. Oh, just, my They're just meandering along. No clue we were there. That's kind of a <laughs> neat experience. <laughs> That's very cool, man. I would love to do a hunt like that sometime. Yeah. So I've I've had some good experiences. Yeah, have you? Do you have a time you can look back on in your outdoors pursuits and think that was a I had a spiritual moment in the woods? Or do you? Or if if you if if there's not one of those times, do you look forward to the deer hunt in the fall? Do you look forward to? Sitting in your stand on your family land, in in the, does it tap into your spirit or your soul in some kind of way? If if I could, my only response to that would be is the the repetition of doing it year after year and sharing those mem- sharing cre- creating new memories with my kids. You know the smells, the the sounds. It's like it, it brings me back to when I was 12 years old, hmm. you know, during wow. that first hunt. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I I get that same feeling. I get that feeling, you know, if I'm going for a jog, right, to try to get in shape for the season in September, you know, when the leaves are falling and you smell those leaves. Um, in a way, that's I guess that's a bit of a spiritual moment, yeah. Tony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. No, I think it absolutely is. I know, I know that feeling. I find myself – uh, during the off season, spending a lot of time thinking about how many times will I get to go to South Dakota to pheasant hunt this right, year, yeah, and yeah. am I going to make it back to North Dakota for ducks, and when, you know, waiting for them to announce when deer opener is, and and that kind of thing. Yeah, hunting over a good dog. There's something spiritual about that too. I mean, oh man, it goes back millennia. You know, that's so true. That, do you, you, a, you know that better than me. You get some. You've had some great dogs. I have great dogs. Do you have a dog now? I don't. Uh, which is my wife is allergic to dogs. Oh boo hoo! And uh, that's been very man, frustrating. We I bet. we almost bought a dog three years ago. I told you this story. It's real quick. Um, Let's hear it. Let's hear it. We went to a kennel to buy a dog. Okay. And well, to see the uh, to see the female. What kind of dogs were these? It was golden retriever. That's why okay. I grew up. I love sure, goldens. I sure. know some people like to rip on goldens, but they're awesome Yeah, I do dogs. too. They're not the smartest, but go ahead. With the proper breeding, <laughs> they're, they're pretty darn smart. But anyway, uh, we, we hung out. We saw another litter. Uh, my wife petted dogs. We had a good time. Uh, we left. Within a half an hour, I, I could show you the picture. My wife's eyes were crusted closed. No. She had just an incredible reaction to these, to these dogs. And 
you know, the whole family could see it. And, I mean, we went out, we, we grabbed a pizza, and it was like sitting in a morgue. We were just all so sad because we knew the dog dream had just ended. Jeez. <laughs> oh, um, so, that and, is a bummer. You know, people say, get a, what is it, a Portuguese water spaniel or some damn thing. No, I, yeah. No, I, I can't do it. I, I, I got to have a good home. And you don't, live in a, you don't live in a place where you could have your dog outdoors in a kennel all day either. We don't. Which a lot of, you know, a lot of guys you and I hunt with live out in the country right. and their dogs never come inside. Yeah. The wife never touches the dog. Right. It's out in the kennel all the time mm-hmm. and barking all the time. No one cares because you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I, I couldn't have a dog like that. That's just not me. Yeah. I, I'm a house dog kind of guy and I want to have that kind of bond with, with my pooch. Gosh. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's, you could make, build like a, she could be like the bubble boy. You could build like a, <laughs> Inside your house, that's you a great idea. I'm gonna run that pasture tonight, Tony. <laughs> let me know. Let me know how that goes, honey. We just had this idea, Tony and I did on the yeah, podcast. You're a bubble girl. Yeah. <laughs> um. Does has your has been been a um outdoors journalist made you cynical? I mean, I'm wondering about for some people, hunting and fishing and outdoorsy stuff is so romantic. Have, have because you've seen how the sausage gets made and you're so involved in how governments are screwing this up has it ha, do you struggle to maintain that passion and romance for hunting and fishing absolutely I do struggle with it a lot i there's there's a couple components there when I was in college I remember a sports writer came and spoke to our class. <clears throat> and he, uh, we, we talked to him, and you do you love your job? Yeah, and do you like sports? And he, he said, the one thing I'll, I'd throw at you is, the last thing I'm doing in my free time is going to a baseball game. Mm. And there's a little bit of that. When you make something your profession, it's sometimes yeah. hard to maintain as a passion. I, I haven't struggled with that as much. Uh, th- there's times where it's like, I don't want to think about another Lindy rig, you know, for <laughs> a couple of weeks. A Lindy rig, for those who don't know, is, a, is fishing gear. Right, right. Yeah. So I have a passion for the environment. I have a passion for the the conservation history of this country, uh, and and that that's really what drives me is, yeah. is trying to leave Minnesota and America. I love this country. Trying to leave it better than it was when I got here for for future generations. And I, I fully I I admire the legacy, the conservation legacy, the foresight that you know, the, the Lacey Act and, and TR and those guys showed 120 years ago. Even up into the 60s and 70s, you know, some amazing legislation that occurred. Then what happened? Whew. Um, it, we, we did okay for a long time, and then in the early 2000s, things started to swing. Uh, the, the, the clean water rule, for, for example, that's when those Supreme Court rulings came down. Uh, and it seems like we're, we're fighting to maintain what we've got. And what's hard for me, Tony, is when I see other people who are even involved in the industry, more so than I am, who seem to care less about the, the political lens that, that drives um, some, some of the rollbacks that we're seeing. Um, I, when I, you mean when, like they refuse to acknowledge that it's one party yeah. That's rolling back the protections. Yeah. When when I go to the ballot box, I'm thinking about conservation. I'm not uh-huh. thinking about abortion. I'm not thinking about taxes. I'm not thinking about immigration. Name the issue. I'm not thinking about it. Yeah. And it, it just it, it just surprises me how few people even in this industry are like me. Oh, yeah. And you know, hey, that that's fine, I guess. Um but it it's it does ma- it has made me more cynical over the past. How do you maintain decade. hope then? Because um, you it's just getting tougher. Well, you sounded <laughs> you 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 sounded hopeful, like you want to leave a legacy, and you know you you care about the country. Um, how do you? Yeah, how do you stay hopeful? Because it it just seems like all the time. Uh, it's bad news. Yeah, I, in the past month we've had what NEPA. To, it, it, we've had exp- migratory bird explain. trees stuff, and uh-huh. we've had WOTUS. You know, just that's just in a month. We don't even know what the you, you got to explain those for for non insiders. Well, NEPA is what National Environmental Policy Act. Uh, 
you know that that's uh, that you have to take in what the environment and account on, on some of these decisions uh the migratory bird treaty act i mean that was something that thing's over 100 years old every administration republican and democrat for a century said yep we get it migratory bird treaty act yeah you can't you can't act on eagle nest fine and all of a sudden now you know we're, we're, we're rewriting rules for yeah. the, we're not suggesting you can knock down the eagle nest. I don't want to say but that. that but. Migratory, but, but that when you develop a, an area, the migratory species don't need to, don't um, necessarily need to be protected. Right. It's more about direct killing, not indirect killing yeah. anymore. Um, and then this waters the United States rule that I wrote about this week uh, in, in my column. Uh, I'm really disappointed with that. And I'm disappointed by the reaction of some of the conservation groups. Uh, some of which have said nothing really? about it. Uh, yeah. You can read my column. That's, I will. That disappointed me. But like I said, that's just in <laughs> it's just in the past month. There's a whole litany of things that have occurred in the Trump administration that um, it's just shocking. I, I you know I'll, I'll just say it. This is the worst conservation environment administration in American history. Really? I think so. I mean, was the Rutherford B. Hayes administration worse in the 1870s? Maybe. I, I don't know. I guess Doubtful. I, I guess Doubtful. I can't. You know, there was a policy back then to shoot all the buffalo, right, to starve the Indians. That's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, but certainly in the in the modern American history, I, I'm pretty confident saying that this administration is the worst. And why? What's behind that? Is it this? Let me ask you this. Uh, and for listeners who aren't, you know, from Minnesota or whatever, one of the things that was brought up recently at, at a roundtable of of outdoorsy people here in the in the cities or i mean in a state was this um the the minnesota department of natural resources wanted to was being sold some private land in western minnesota got lack of apparel yes and the county board uh nixed the deal because they don't think government agencies should own any more land than they already have I saw that as something on a micro level that is the same as what you're saying about at a federal level. Oh yeah, it's right, isn't it? Without the question. Same? Okay, sure. And absolutely. what is that? That just that government is it just generally that government's bad, and so why would we want government to own land when that land could be owned privately? We want land to be owned privately. Sure. If it's owned privately, it's being farmed. Uh, you're selling farm implements to maintain that land. You're selling fertilizer. You're selling seed. You're, you know, that whole economy ties in. You and I know that public land helps drive local economies, too. Yeah. Uh, and not only that, it's good for things like carbon sequestration. It's good for water quality. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's good for a whole multitude of things um, over and beyond the fact that, that you're providing access to hunters. We're, we're, I'm part of this panel at uh, Pheasant Fest next okay. weekend. We're having a public lands panel uh, that is going to discuss Minnesota public lands issues as well as uh, national public lands issues. And one of our uh, m- people on the panel is a, is a Fish and Wildlife Service guy named Scott Gloop. And we, were pl- we, were, uh, we had a, a conference called talking about some of the issues just this morning. And, you know, Scott, it was, it, was, it was really good to hear him say this. This is a guy who's been out buying land for the feds for 20 plus years okay he said you know rob everyone's talking about lack of apparel he said i we buy land all the time and i i never get turned down okay so you know so this uh, was uh, an exception it was an exception but it, it's it's a, absolutely a fine example of, w- of what we're getting at that there's an attitude up out there that you know anything involving government's bad and uh, we can't take more land off the tax rolls and yeah you know, no net gain that's that's a thing out there right yeah, now that must hit a little bit close to home since your dad spent his career working for public agencies on things like public land yeah. and, and for wildlife on, on behalf of wildlife. Sure, absolutely, it, it it hits hard, and that that's that's where I come from. That's the reason I'm the way I am. You know, I yeah. I was a lucky kid in some ways. I I moved a lot, which is challenging when you, know, you move six times before you're fourteen. But I also got to live on national wildlife refuges a couple in a couple places, northern Michigan and, and mm. here in Minnesota, and that's mm. that's pretty neat environment for yeah, a kid. Yeah, yeah. So what's um, what do you think the future is then for the next in the next ten years in conservation? Well, I think we've got to we got to try to stay positive, and there's okay. been some positive things out there. I mean, the 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 growth of BHA, uh, which is the backcountry hunters and anglers, mm-hmm. a, a new young yep. upstart uh, conservation group. Yeah, they like to drink beer. 
but I'm, 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 I'm a member. I'm a member. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So am yeah, I. Yeah, they're and good guys. So that's been and positive. gals and gals, yep. which is one part of you that's bet. interesting about it. Okay, let me ask you this before you get into sure. what, what the next because it, this is one thing that as relatively new into this um, world, you, you uh, BHA the, the, these backcountry hunters and anglers, mm-hmm. they do represent. It seems to me a pretty different vision for hunting and fishing than the old than the old timers. Am I wrong about that? In, in terms different of politics s- for sure like I read your most of the columnists in your paper represent an older guard. There I I don't know that there's a single columnist in there that who's a probably a BHA member, right? Which is maybe something you should change. Okay. But <laughs> I know you're trying to get, mm. have less columnists, not more, but um is there a culture clash within like the hunting community between that older guard, these baby boomers like you're talking about, this big bubble of people? You know, I read a story, something about how, you know, these BHA guys maybe are a little more Western influ- uh, focused, right? And yeah, they, they like big game hunts. Right. They seem to be more based on internal data that they've released, more like they have more progressive or more Democrats than a, a traditional Ducks Unlimited or uh you know the uh, wild national wild turkey federation or whatever those are tend to be more conservative yeah th- groups there's some of that i when i read that piece i thought man is this piece necessary it just seemed unnecessarily divisive mm. when we're all working okay. towards the same uh, i will say that here in minnesota tony at some of these bha pine nights i see some of the old guard showing up yeah that's cool and they're they're yeah they want to be a part of that energy yeah you know, that's sure. that's what for i sure. sense so i i'm cautiously optimistic about okay it. so for the next 10 years in conservation stay positive <laughs> easy for you to say no i know it's not easy for you to say but like what do you think will be the the bat the big battles is it going to be water is it going to be public land i mean i tend to think like the draining of wetlands is really scares the crap out of me oh yeah and and this water's rule <laughs> from two weeks ago is that's exhibit a yeah, yeah. if you want to be scared we had a big public lands battle about a year ago was it was that guy from utah was it chavez i forget his name yeah uh, i don't uh, i remember a, a rep yeah. out there who he, was, he had some bill to sell yeah, off like three million Chav- acres or something Jason chavez, yeah. and uh he he did a 180 he took a lot of pressure and so a lot of this public land let's return to public lands to the states i'm not hearing that right now yeah and that's, that's good uh, so I, I think I think that's a that's a positive. Which that I, that move was take the federal lands, give it to the states, because in more conservative states, then they'll start to lease out those lands for out, sell it, grazing, yeah. Yeah. oil exploration, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was an issue. Um, you know the buffer law that that passed here yeah. a couple of years ago. That was fairly controversial. For at least two sessions after that, we had a lot of nibbling and nitpacking. Let's, let's fix that. I don't hear anything about that right now. Is it being enforced though? I think so. Okay. Yeah. No, I think I think that's been a positive. Now, the, could that change uh, if Walls, if, if we get a, a Republican governor uh, in a few years, possibly? But uh, or maybe everybody's going to say, you know what, that buffer law is working pretty well. We don't. And the buffer law for people who don't know is that there would be a a buffer of like native grasses and plants around every waterway, and which this is where Minnesota is also different is that. All water is public water in this state, and that's not the case, for instance, out west. Yeah, right. So our state government can say that because they have they we have a public interest in preserving that water. I talk to politicians who go to other states, and and the buffalo comes up, and these other other legislators are like, "Well, you did what? (laughs) Yeah, you know that's that's pretty neat thing. That is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah." So, uh, because down by where you down in southern Minnesota, where your deer camp southeast, is, yeah. like, would you let your kids swim in those streams down there? I mean, I've heard there's a lot of like basically quote unquote dead, dead lakes. In well, we don't have lakes down there. Yeah, you know, uh, but would I let them swim in the streams? <laughs> I, I we trout fish them hard. I mean, I mean, if a stream's good would enough for trout, that, would you eat that trout? I've eaten lots oh, okay. of southeast trout. Okay, okay. Yeah, you can argue if it's affecting me or not. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, the stream quality has definitely deteriorated in the southeast the past twenty years. But uh, would I let them swim? I don't know. I guess yeah, I'd, I'd certainly yeah, make yeah. them. Uh, I'd, I'd hose them off afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but but other issues, I. I, I I don't like this waters of the United States rule that was just rewritten. I, I, I hate it. 
And I don't know what it's going to take to turn that around. A new administration, probably. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was very controversial uh, what the Obama administration passed, uh, put into rule in 2015. Even though it basically just recreated what was the law of the land under the Clean Water Act for 30 years. Yeah. Everybody got along just fine under that, didn't they? Uh, so, so but man, conservation. Even water, it just isn't even on the radar in this presidential election. No, you're right. Even like even our like a resource we need to survive, water, not even on the not even a talking point for any candidate. No, you're right. Environment is just not an issue for most voters. Not now. They going, I don't know what what it are was the back in the days of acid rain and stuff. I mean, that was a, it was an issue. Yeah, but now it's all health care and abortion. Abortion. Yeah, that's, that's all. 40% of the electorate, I think, is thinking about abortion when they go into the yeah. the, the voting booth. Uh, and this immigration stuff has got everyone. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I I sure appreciate what you what journalists like you're doing, Dennis Anderson, an, another guest on this podcast, and others are doing, sounding the alarm about how important our environment is. But, man, I I hope people tune in. It do, It does kind of seem like... There's going to have to be some really big catastrophe. A burning river again or... Uh, or or like Miami get, you know, <laughs> going underwater and yeah. 10 million people having to relocate into other cities. And people in Kansas City being like, yeah, we don't really want another million right. people here or whatever. That hurricane hit in New Orleans, I would have liked to have thought would have woke a few more people up. No, they uh, just rebuild under sea yeah. level. They, they yep. live we'll under just, sea level. We'll just rebuild under sea level. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, uh, yeah, I told you about this this thing we're doing at Pheasants Forever, the National uh, Public Lands Panel. Whit yeah. Fosberg from TRCP, we were preparing for that. And, and he and I think maybe even Lantoni chimed in that they feel like climate change is, is gaining steam yeah, in, in Congress. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, there was this Roosevelt Conservation Caucus that Lindsey Graham and some others introduced about six months ago, which I firmly believe was nothing but window dressing to try to you know, tell the general public we actually do care about the environment. Yeah, right. But Lindsey Graham, during that press conference, said when 90-plus percent of scientists out there tell me that climate change is real, I believe the 90%, not the 10%. That's pretty much a direct quote. I mean, I, I think that's a pretty big deal coming from a Republican senator. Yeah. So uh, I think, you know, maybe maybe we're turning the corner on that one. Yeah, maybe we're bottoming out. How's that? <laughs> we're going to start to turn the corner. Well, um, I'm going to try to stay hopeful. I'll keep reading your columns and yeah, I, I just wish more people would speak truth to power, and mm-hmm. that's what I'm going to kind of try to keep doing. There's a lot of people that hate me for it, but what are you doing? Well, it's interesting to circle back to what we started talking about. That, of course, is exactly what got Jesus into trouble. That's right. <laughs> you know, I mean, ultimately, he was crucified for political reasons. Speaking truth to power. Yeah, and and. Uh, I like the Churchill quote, uh, do people hate your guts? Good, that means you've stood for, stood up for something in your life. And I'm paraphrasing, but something That's like that. Good. That's good. <laughs> Churchill and Jesus, yeah. bedfellows. Yep, yep. Well, hey, man, thanks. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me on. I, I enjoy your company, Tony, and you and I and our fellow Gen Xers out there need to get together more often. <laughs> Let's do it. All, All right. right.